Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features the Amatis Piano Trio. We hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Rosanna Moore, and I hope that you are having a wonderful day wherever you are listening to us. Today, my incredible, my wonderful, my lovely co-host is the delightful Adam Paul Cordell. Adam, how are you today? Hey, Rosie, I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, I am just dandy. Thank you so much for asking. And this is a really interesting interview for us because all of us are in three different time zones, three different time zones and different countries, which is really wonderful. I'm on the West Coast, Adam is on the East Coast, and our incredible guests, the Amatis Piano Trio, are all the way over in Europe, which I am so excited to introduce them today. The Amatis Piano Trio, which is Leah Hausman, Sam Shepard, and Menji Han. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you all? Thank you so much for having us. Yes, we're doing very well. We're here in uh, Salzburg in Austria right now. And uh, yeah, not too much going on these days, as you can well imagine. So you all formed as an ensemble and then went on to win first prize with the International Parkhouse Award uh, a few weeks later. What prompted you to actually establish yourselves as a group and then devote your careers to this ensemble? It was like many chamber ensembles, I think, a, a bit of good fortune. We have a, a, an unusual origin story. Maybe Leia, you want to share it? <laughs> well, we all originally met in Amsterdam uh, first I met Sam actually and um, we started busking on the streets together to make some money because the tuition fee in Amsterdam is quite uh, expensive for the Europe European people uh, <laughs> I was gonna say America <laughs> yes of course it's very different there but still we were we were not able to afford even our tuition here so we started busking on the streets and eventually we saw a poster advertising a competition a nationwide competition in Holland uh, looking for the next great chamber ensemble. So Sam and I decided we should find a pianist, recruit a pianist from somewhere and then uh, participate. So where best to find a pianist than an international piano competition, which was being held in Amsterdam at the time. So we promptly bought some tickets to the uh, semifinals, I think. And we decided we were just going to listen to everybody and then we just ask whoever we like best. And Menji played first, like a two-hour program, I think. Yes. <laughs> oh, lordy. <laughs> and we decided, oh, I thought, yeah, he will do. <laughs> so he played phenomenally. And we we snuck backstage afterwards and we asked him, hey, by the way, in case you know you have some time, we would love to do this chamber music competition in a few weeks' time. 
are you up for it? <laughs> and well, yeah, Menji said yes. And we started rehearsing almost instantly. And then we ended up winning the audience prize in Concert Ribao. So that's basically how we started. Yeah, I remember being incredibly surprised. Like I had just played this <laughs> program and I, I didn't even catch my breath be before these two bounded up to me. And I was like, oh, well, fans, that's great. And then they told me this story and uh, well, I promptly uh, put in my application, so to speak. And uh, yeah, uh, the rest was history, actually. We started rehearsing really quickly and I, it was so much fun the first week to be uh, playing stuff together, to do chamber music together. For me, that was always a big passion. I loved playing, well, I still love, I love playing with other musicians, to share the stage with other people and to share the experiences that that's what I've always dreamt of. And, you know, these two came along and this was such a great chance, yeah. And the origin story is, is quite unusual because we, we know many other ensembles that kind of form through uh, a kind of kindled friendship or something like this and then they kind of have to make everything else fit and and we've kind of come at it the other way we appreciated each other's playing but are vastly different people and so actually in many ways the playing has always been the the easy bit um, finding each other understanding uh, what we're wanting from the music has been a nice process and, and relatively easy, particularly at the start, actually. And then, of course, to find each other on a personal level with all the challenges that chamber music has and all the traveling and all the hotel rooms and flights and waiting in airports and things like this, um, you know, that, that becomes a massive challenge um, for a sustained period of time that we've been together. Of course, I, I must say this is I think the first story that we've had of this podcast, which hasn't been, oh, we were friends in music college. So I love that you just broke into a piano competition and found a pianist. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, the story basically for us is we were poor and we needed a piano. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, each of you hail from different parts of Europe and the world. Um, I'm wondering how the current political atmosphere with rising nationalism and declining international cooperation, um, how those things are affecting your experience as chamber musicians? Well, there's an, there's an obvious kind of issue in the room, so to speak, which is that I'm from the UK and we have, I don't know whether people have heard about it, but we're leaving Europe. It, it might present challenges as of yet. Um, I think it's been a strength that we hail from different places that maybe we have different philosophies on life. Um, I think it gives us a very broad spectrum of information to kind of decipher music and to go about the world. And we all fit into different places with a kind of different ease with each other. I mean, Leia has studied in the States before, so she's totally at home when we're over there. And, you know, the Dutch have their own way about them. The, the British, we're just weird. And Yeah, that's true. That's very and true. <laughs> we, we have a German in our a group and we live in Austria now. So uh, helpful for admin. Of course, there are many political um, hurdles being put in place, particularly for arts and culture. You just have to navigate it as, as and when it crops up. We're at the mercy of the broader system all the time. So you just have to have patience and make sure you've got your paperwork in order and 
for now, I've got a right to remain here. These guys are still in the EU, so we've got no plans on having to operate out of different countries just yet. Well, there's okay. there's another difficulty, which is, uh, I would say, is a difficulty being from three different parts of the world, so to say, it's we have a bit of an identity problem because countries these days, they really love to support their own musicians. And then yeah. very, a lot of funding, mm. for example, comes mainly for people, citizens of one country, or you have to have two member, two German members to get the support from this certain foundation. And that makes things rather difficult for us because we're not really claimed by any of the countries. We're, we're kind of free floating. And therefore, maybe we are losing out on a little bit of support in that way because we cannot tap into those um, certain areas of, of uh, support. Yeah, so basically we go, we have to find um a different way to go about it, so to speak. Uh, we try up until so far. I mean, we formed about six years ago, I think, and we've always tried to tap into all kinds of different markets to spread our net as wide as we can. So um, we were never really focused on one specific country where we uh, really established a home base, so to speak. But um, I mean predicting what's going to happen in the future is always a risky business but i feel like this year especially um, has shown venues might be more inclined to stick to uh, their own uh, musicians people who are closer to home they don't necessarily want to fly artists from abroad from far away in just to give a concert and i i feel like that we can expect that to be the norm going forwards as well so you know right now we are um, very much tapping into a, a market that uh, doesn't have any borders namely the internet so we mm. we are trying to um, establish more reach by posting more videos and recording more stuff so that we can still reach our audience uh, in indonesia whom we've played to years ago or in india or in china these far kind of places but yes the consequences of course we the thing we miss most i think is the travel but we'll just have to deal with it and we will i i think that there's there uh, what manchi says is very true that there's there's been this shift and i think it's going to have a profound impact on our industry um but with every big shift there's many opportunities and it's just always about kind of having your finger on the pulse and seeing where that next avenue opens up, whether it be online and finding ways to monetize what, what you do there that, that builds your fan base for the future. If you do it in the right way, then you maybe have fans in the city where you've never played before. And, and they're people who will indeed turn up to your concert and hear you, hear you live. And ultimately that's what being a performer is about. I mean, that's the, that's the relationship you have to cultivate because concert halls will have you if they know they can fill the concert hall with you. Yeah. And that ensures your longevity. Your ensemble has worked to expand the piano trio repertoire by contemporary composers, which led to the foundation of the Dutch Piano Trio Composition Prize. What are your goals for this prize going forward? And what are some of the gaps that you see in your repertoire that you're hoping to address going forward? Well, actually, we, we kind of have pivoted on that a little bit, and we now we, we now have a residency at Cambridge University where we mm. are specifically tasked with working with young composers there. 
So this year we have a class of 11 composers. They're, they're all writing music for us and we hold workshops. We help to kind of guide their process, teach them about our instruments more so they can write better. And at the end of the year, we have kind of performances for them. So we've actually managed to, through that original composition award, we managed to find our path into an institution that would provide us with these really incredibly talented and intelligent young people. And to have a much more um, long-term and ongoing relationship with them. And it's been hugely rewarding for us to see their, their progress, but also to learn from our side uh, about deciphering what a composer is writing. It's quite interesting where our blind spots are as to maybe what the intentions were of someone. Um, also, I, I, I think that uh, it's, it's really become very clear to us, at least, that it's so important to have this dialogue as, as musicians with the composer. I mean, we have we had that also historically. I mean, Brahms and Joachim, for example, they were you know working so closely together that we don't know who was influencing whom really. Uh, now, what we're realizing mm. is that it's and also the composers I think are quite grateful for this is that we can actually tell them what we as musicians would like this kind of music to be. We cannot write it because we just I mean we don't know how to, <laughs> <laughs> but we have our sentiments and feelings that we want to uh, incorporate in the music which sometimes if it's just a composer working in a dry room in in his on his computer with midi files and i don't know algorithms then sometimes something comes out that is just also not so appealing to an audience for example and when we have this experience on stage we know what works and we know what works for us and what works for an audience which sometimes is not the same even mm -hmm. but I think it's very important to have that dialogue between composers and musicians yeah. for the best outcome. And, you know, personally, for me, at least, one of the great pleasures is actually discovering a gem that you literally have never heard before because it's never been performed before. It's a new piece. And when someone comes up with an incredible idea or an incredible sound and a color, um, this is so incredibly re rewarding to me, at least in a way more so even than trying to um, reinterpret work from the old masters, because there's always this element of, yeah, I know the music. I've heard it before on a CD or something, and I love the piece for sure. But it's not this pure creation, this discovery where you're just left in awe and hearing something for the first time and you realize it's good. It's wonderful. I think what you, you said, Leo, was a very important point that sometimes when when they get us in the room and they hear it on the live instruments, you can awaken so much more inspiration in them. And this idea that Leo was talking about with Joachim and all of his relationships with the kind of composers of the day, it's astonishing, his history. We forget that composers, a large majority of them used to be performers themselves. And they had a sense mm. for that, that flair they had a sense for the, the relationship between the performer and the audience and about how that is something that is always evolving, always changing. And they were very sensitive to that in the music they wrote. And I think that's something that we are able to really help composers with through this closer relationship where they get, they get that flair in their music. 
that this is a performance art in the end of the day. It's not that little concept, as Manji said, with the, the, or Leia said, with the MIDI file. It's, it's really a live experience. Well, it's even, it's even more than that, I think, sometimes, is that we, we sometimes tend to forget why an audience comes to hear a concert or why an audience is even there. I mean, they're there to hear beauty or to feel emotion, which both of those things are, are quite often forgotten in the new music, the contemporary music that is being written today because people get carried away with mathematics and with effects to the point that actually it is not an experience anymore for an audience member where they can sit down and actually experience something that hits them in some way emotionally or... It becomes more of a puzzle piece for the composer and maybe the performer, yeah. Composition where it's only satisfying once you've analyzed it and realize what's going on mm. if and, and not understandable to the ear on first glance. During usual times, your trio regularly appears with major presenters and in ensembles, including the BBC Proms and the Edinburgh International Festival and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and Wigmore Hall. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what the process of designing a season and securing venues like this looks like for your ensemble. <laughs> It involves a lot of email writing. <laughs> <laughs> Always admin <laughs> takes priority over. Always admin. Yes. yes. So normally we start this process about, you know, one to one and a half years in advance, trying to plan for the, uh, see, not the next season, but the one that follows it. Uh, we just overdo it. We just uh, look up venues anywhere that we would uh, be interested in playing, find out the contact of that, and we just write them and, you know, most of them say no, that's fine, or the season is full. But you end up. But they keep a you in mind for they next, keep you in next mind. season, for example. That's good. Yeah, okay. exactly. And, and this is the big change, I believe, in the industry. It's been democratized. It's not anymore about this old model of having your management running out. It really is about cultivating these relationships with the programmers and with the venues. And suddenly, they hold you in mind for things that they never normally would if they didn't have this very close personal connection to you. Certain venues, maybe I shouldn't name them, but certain major venues in Europe <laughs> have been enormously kind to us, where every single opportunity they have to bring in an ensemble, they instantly offer it to us because they know us, they can feel who we are and what we are going to deliver to their audience. And so they really trust us. And when we've had sort of management in the past and you have a more distant connection to the venue you feel that you don't have the same uh, connection with with the venue going forwards well it is i think it's also it's difficult um to find someone to really represent you because i mean like we said we're already three such different people and then if you were if you have somebody representing you that's again an, another person Ideally, we would all have a little clone who just writes all the emails for us, I think. <laughs> but yeah, like Menji said, I mean, sometimes we, uh, a couple of years ago, I decided I really want to play in India uh, with, with you guys. And I just went ahead and I wrote a ton of emails to just pretty much every chamber music opportunity in India. And then eventually we got lucky and we got invited and... We had a great time. I mean, it was I fantastic. I was so surprised that I came off. But, yeah, <laughs> it seemed dodgy at first. <laughs> and not just me, like so many people around me that heard that we were going to tour India, they all come back to me like, 
how how did you manage to arrange that exactly? And yeah, I, but that again is one of these things that we also we were supposed to return to India this year, which couldn't happen because of Corona, unfortunately. Hmm. But they they were incredibly kind to us, and they asked actually for uh, video recordings, and they were still paying us a fee for just doing some kind of almost live stream. I mean, with the time difference, it's not really possible live, but yeah, we were sending them videos and they were broadcasting them to their audience and were incredibly grateful. And it's this constant positive feedback loop. When you're putting yourself out there, you're, you're doing concerts, you're getting exposure, your kind of brand, I hate to speak about it in these terms, but your brand gets out there and, and it takes time. And we're now at a point where I would like to think that every programmer in Europe knows who we are and that's mm -hmm. a great spot to be in and as long as they're hearing positive things as long as you get good reviews for your concerts and your cds and you're getting airtime on the radio it just slowly builds and builds and it 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 accelerates and mm -hmm. it's something to to get out there to young musicians that it it really is just put in that groundwork get used to doing that because it comes back to you and eventually you're not writing a hundred emails every day. Eventually venues start coming to you. And that's a very rewarding moment when a major venue pops up in your personal inbox and you have the programmer's <laughs> name and you can write something nice back that comes from your heart. And it, it puts you in a good spot for the future. Multidisciplinary collaborations seem to be central to the work that you have done as a trio, among them including projects with the Egyptian soprano Fatima Said, Chocolatier Martin Studeny, which is awesome, uh, director Lionel Minard, and even a laser-like production. I, how did you find your way into doing these projects and what plans do you have for any of uh, any future collaborations? The idea of collaborating with other people, it's, they inspire you. When you're three people living in each other's pocket for six years and you've heard the same old thing, it starts to get a bit stale sometimes. And when you have someone new come in and they give a kind of fresh impetus and then they're not like you at all, it inspires you. And the other side of it is, is that when you're doing something like the project that we're, we're setting up at the moment and we'll be performing next year with Fatima Said, the soprano, Egyptian soprano, this is an incredible soprano. She's amazing, but she also has a very flexible voice. And between her and us, we've got music that we love, but we could never get away with performing in a traditional chamber music series somewhere where they want your Schubert's and your Mendelssohn's and your Brahms. Love it. But I wouldn't mind playing the Beatles or some bossa nova music, or it gives us the freedom to go and do something that's a bit out of our wheelhouse. And also that doesn't affect our pre-existing market. Mm -hmm. I mean, we did this, uh, the project you mentioned with Lionel Menard, which was a children's project actually in collaboration with the uh, Luxembourg Philharmonie, um, which was oh, an great. incredible experience for us because we actually got to act on stage. Um, and Lionel Menard himself was having, uh, he was tutored by Marcel Marceau and he was teaching us some of his ways of acting and it was just so much fun and it was so inspiring for us to, to learn these things. And we actually created the whole little musical play basically for children of the ages of two to 10 years old, I think. We had eight performances in three days, I think, for I don't know how many thousands of children in total. And 
just just that it was so funny because they were laughing at i mean we were playing normal classical music just condensed down a little bit into smaller bites and the kids were laughing so much that i remember we had a concert in wigmore hall a week later playing the same haydn that we were also playing in the children's project and we, we ended, or it was in the middle, there was some break in the middle of the piece, and normally the kids were laughing at this point so much. And Wigmore Hall was just completely silent, and we thought, what is wrong with these people? It we were slightly so shocked. <laughs> yes. I mean, but then we were on novel stage again, of course, we were not wearing our owl and cat costumes anymore. <laughs> yeah. and, and the acting thing was so interesting for us, because when you realise that an actor has to amplify everything they're doing, because the person at the back of the hall can't see it, makes you realize how much you must show what you found in the music and how much you must give that to the audience. And I don't mean show in terms of physically, I mean, literally the music itself, you must make sure it translates to your audience. And it was a big learning curve, realizing that the, the way an actor can hold its audience's attention is a stunning thing to behold close up and to start to understand it and to see how it influenced our playing was very gratifying. Well, also we learned, I think, from the children also to take pauses in music even more seriously than we were before, because for a child, a pause in the sudden pause, like in a Beethoven or a Haydn, the tension is so overwhelming that they just start laughing. And now, I mean, we realize that actually we, we've gotten so used to those things but actually, for a small child, this is the most hilarious thing ever. <laughs> exactly. Going off from talking about your work with outreach and children, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, your basically focusing on your audiences and speaking with your audiences before performances and also some of your uh, stranger things that you've done. I found a video from about five years ago of you playing in train stations around <laughs> the Netherlands. Yes. So what are your goals for connecting with audiences through speech and unusual events? It's basically, uh, you play with the audience's expectation. That's what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. You give them a little introduction on what you're about to do or tell them a little story to set them in a certain frame of mind for them to sort of experience your art, your music in a different way. And so, you know, the train station video, that was, that was very fun in the sense that no one knew that we were doing it. Like, it wasn't like the yes. audience came, bought a ticket and sat at the train station and expected the performers, not at all. <laughs> we just uh, took the train, got to the train station. There is a piano at every train station in the Netherlands, and that's, that's a great thing. We just sat there, we set up, and we just started playing. And people didn't know what happened to them. Like, this was, <laughs> this was so spontaneous, and this was so uh, incredibly pure. Um, and I think that, that that's, you give people a very different experience to anything that they could ever have when they go to a concert hall. Well, it's also, I think we're trying to break down a little bit the boundaries because we know a lot of people our age, for example, who are a little bit intimidated by the idea of going to a concert hall. It doesn't seem like it's yeah. their thing. They are not really into classical music, but then when they hear us, I mean, they're our friends usually, so they say it was amazing, but then <laughs> they, I mean, they also say that it wasn't at all what they expected it to be. And that's something that uh, we really like, that we can also, Sam talks to all our English audience, and then I do it whenever it's not English. And it's such a nice way to actually come closer to your audience. Just, it's not even, it's not to educate them about the pieces, it's basically to introduce ourselves and to 
make sure we are all have a fun two hours together in the concert hall. A, a crucial thing we try to do is not give dry history. I hated history. It was always so laborious. And actually, history's so rich once you can get down and tell it from a much more personal. We've heard so many people introduce their pieces in this very dry way. It was written in blah, blah, blah. It just switches you off instantly. And we always try to find a hook in the music, in the story of the life of the composer, and give a little bit of emotional and narrative context to the music that so someone can just enter it with very open ears because when you're playing a 45 minute Schubert second piano trio it's an intimidating piece for a mm -hmm. an inexperienced audience member but if you give them listening points as you go through the piece and they're like ah this this bit okay I, I'm back I'm back on the train with you and you can bring them along on this incredible journey well it's also it's also that I think we we want to bring back the human aspect of the music because it seems so far it's so old all this music is written so many hundreds years ago hundreds of years ago and people don't know how to connect with it sometimes especially if they're not normally listening to classical music so if you give them these little pointers there's been so many studies made that people enjoy listening to music more when they actually know what they're listening to it's like when you're listening to a song and you understand the lyrics because they're in english or you listen to a song that Yes, maybe it's, it sounds fun, but you don't understand. Maybe it's in Chinese and you don't understand what it's about. So if yeah. then somebody tells you, well, this person was absolutely heartbroken and they're just, you know, or I don't know, their dog died, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, just even to know what it's emotionally about uh, could help you to actually enjoy something more. I also think that audience members, mm -hmm. they don't realize what rebels many of our composers were. I mean, we live in oh, Mozart. Yeah. We live in the city of Mozart, you know, and he's on every single building here being used to advertise. And chocolate. He's, yeah, he's advertising chocolate, supermarket, <laughs> ham. It's really weird. <laughs> and people don't realize good. that Mozart wasn't just this wig wearing, pompous guy. Who no, there's music. a reason he was called the Eternal Child. Yes. He uh, he was he was a bit of a demon. It's he was, kind a, of he was a total rock star, <laughs> and you know he was cool in his day. And it's about injecting, as Leia said, that that humanity. Who was he? His his music is rebellious. It's not this weird place we got to last century where it was all just pretty and nice and prim and proper it has real soul and uh, and muck and dirt and pain in it and that's our job to make sure the audience feels a much wider spectrum than they thought they could experience with it well just to wrap up because this has been enlightening it's been great having you guys uh, on to chat with us today but i was just wondering aside from playing in a bunch of train stations What's the weirdest gig that you've ever done? Um, oh, no, two. The medical convention. Three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. We'll start. We'll give you three. First one, medical convention. Very, very early on. Um, Lair and I were busking on the streets. We'd formed as a piano trio. And this woman walks up and she's like, oh, you must come play at our medical convention tomorrow. 
like, great, we'll ring our pianist, let's turn up. Had an upright piano. Everyone's got their like, Philips were there with some kind of laser scanner. And there was some, it was very, very strange. And we were kind of away in the corner playing acoustically and no one could hear us, partly because Manji was hammering the piano, absolutely hammering it, but nothing was coming out. We we're like, it's an upright piano. We've never done this. Oh, what's going on? So weird. And we kind of take a bow for the three people that are clapping that could hear us at the front. And Manji kind of steps up and realizes that he had the practice pedal on the whole performance. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird concert number one. Weird concert number two for me was Hong Kong doing audience voting, which is a, another strategy we've had for inviting the audience. We, we kind of do a concert a la carte. We have a program of a menu and we get the audience to vote in real time with a round of applause for which piece they'd like. And Manji's mother had come along and it was the third concert and we played the other two pieces from the program the previous times. And we'd said to her, can you clap for this piece? Cause we want it. But she wasn't very subtle about it because as we started the voting process, she kind of stood up and told everyone to vote for Mendelssohn. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and and Manji just sunk his head into the keys of the piano. You know, you know what I've realized? I'm actually the one here creating all weird <laughs> concerts. I've just seen no, no, no. The Here's the last one, which I would like to tell is actually involves Connie, whom you also know from Sam's. I had invited him to one of our concerts in England uh, secretly because I wanted to surprise Sam. He wanted to surprise Sam and we decided together he will come and he will only reveal himself after the concert so that it's not, you know, not distraction before. And as we're playing the, the last movement of the Schubert uh, second trio, suddenly there's a little bit of rumbling around in the front row and a man had fainted. And in my shock, I, I just stopped because he had fainted and the woman was uh, very, worried and we stopped and I stood up on the dark stage and I just pointed into the audience and I said but we have a doctor here Conrad's a doctor, <laughs> Conrad's a doctor. <laughs> and Sam's friend who's a doctor and he he came up right away but Sam looked at me on stage like are you crazy like I mean how would you what, what is going on here how do you know and, there's a doctor yeah, in and the then building? suddenly Conrad appears from the back of the hall and Sam is just completely confused <laughs> And uh, Conrad saves the day by, I don't know. Yeah, so my friend saves the day. We go into the interval and you get this realization that we as performing musicians are really weird because we, are, we get so comfortable in front of audiences. And the reason why we know this is because I invited Connie up to take a round of applause from the audience <laughs> for the, you know, life-saving work he'd just done. Mm -hmm. And he, he shriveled under the pressure of the audience. <laughs> I'm mainly saying that because I want my best friend to hear me describing him as this. <laughs> so he's never coming to so a I'm concert not, I'm again. I'm not inviting him again, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, we're going to wrap this up. Thank you guys so much for chatting with us this evening for you, this morning for me. Uh, this has been so, so much fun. Uh, I know that you recently released your debut album. By the way, I have been listening to, especially the Inescu on um, repeat on Spotify. It's so cool. It's really good. So dear listeners, please go and check out their um, debut CD. It's really, really fantastic. And check out all of their social medias and their website, which will be down in the show notes as always. And we will speak to you all soon. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Georges Inescu and performed by the Amatisse Piano Trio. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks. <laughs>